This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. For the ones standing guard. For the eagle-eyed. For the knights in shining armor. And for all those who support them. We are Granger, your experienced safety partner. Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. Committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com slash safety or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done. All right, let's do this again. It's Film Study with Ken McCusick. One more week, one more show where we're going to look back at this past season. Ken McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm excited that we've got Michael back here. Two episodes in a row. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. It's good to be back again. Uh, feeling uh, right at home now after uh, after this being the second episode. <laughs> well, that's good. I think uh, a lot of good feedback today on uh, on Twitter as the episode. It's only been out for one day, but already getting a good response of you joining the show. Yeah, I saw some of that. I want to just uh, say thanks to everybody who who listened and uh, who tweeted or, you know, maybe sent some positive feedback in, in some other way. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, always humbling uh, when, when people say nice things about you. Yep. Very nice stuff. Very nice stuff all day. Right. So yesterday we, t- we went through the defense. Today you guys are going to go through the offensive players, and then we'll get to the mailbag at the end. So it's, uh, it's your guy's show now. All right. Well, uh, let's start off where we did it yesterday. So we, we, I guess we'll talk again about the five categories because there's always possibly we're picking up a new uh, listener for the first time who's, who's hearing this format for the first time. But I split the roster into five categories, the young producers, players on the first contract uh, who are already starting or, or otherwise performing well, uh, developmental players still on the first contract, but they're not necessarily, they haven't, haven't gotten into a starting role or haven't gotten into a significant role yet. And so they're just not quite there yet, but we hope they will be. Then you have the veterans playing for market value. Those are the guys you're paying a lot of money, generally speaking, and they are the players who are earning the money in that group. And then you have veteran cap value concerns, and those are players who have an upcoming number anyway for 2019 that's very large relative to the likely value they'll produce, and that's why they're cap value concerns. And then you have a transitional category at the end are, are players who don't really seem to necessarily have a long-term place in the organization, and uh, you know we'll see how that ends up. The defensive guys in that category are very talented. The offensive guys, it's a mixed bag, and this we'll, we'll talk through at the end. So anyway, Michael, how you doing? We really appreciate having you on for the first show. Do you want to start us off and pick a young producer that you're like, and then we can kind of alternate our way through this? Okay, yeah, no, glad glad to be back again, like I said. So taking a look at your article, you've got, what, one, two, three, four, five, six guys in this young producer category. And uh, while it would be easy to jump right to Lamar Jackson, uh, I'm actually going to start with Mark Andrews uh, because – I think that he had a year that, at least for me, uh, obviously it was it was it was a good year. He, he played really well. Uh, I wasn't necessarily surprised, I would say, uh, because I thought actually out of the two tight ends they drafted, he probably would have the bigger impact just because of his background. I mean, he basically was a big wide receiver uh, at Oklahoma and coming out uh, in high school. I don't know if many people knew his story, but he actually played where Kurt Warner's son uh, was a quarterback of his high school team. And I think Andrew set a bunch of Arizona state high school receiving records. So he had the pedigree, but uh, had a good year at a position that it's, it's typically hard to have a good rookie year in third in receptions, first in receiving yards, fourth in receiving TDs among rookie tight ends. So uh, I don't I don't know if there's really too much uh, negative, uh, too many negatives there for, for Mark Andrews in his first year. Yeah, kind of a thin rookie crop, honestly, at the position. If you look at PFF rankings, you'd see in the top five, uh, Hurst had been in it for 
at points during the year. We know he didn't really have a, a particularly large contribution in his rookie year. Uh, Andrews, uh, obviously what he does as a blocker is going to be significant for this organization, but I think just as the guy who can flex, he has a lot of value in terms of forcing the other team to decide between a nickel or a heavier package uh, when, when the Ravens go to a three-receiver set with, sorry, a two-receiver and two-tight-end set. So he does create matchup problems there. I really like that. Okay, so Orlando Brown, the right tackle, had a uh, very fine rookie year from my perspective. Uh, three sacks of five one-thirds and two two-thirds in the uh, Chargers game, the, the playoff game. So I, I've seen other estimates that are lower, let's just say that, in terms of sacks. But I, I don't think there's any need to overstate what he did. His from a run-blocking perspective, from a pass-blocking perspective, he's excellent at both. Good mobility, getting to level two, getting that seal to the inside when needed, getting the, picking up the player, at, whether on the outside or uh, or kicking out. Uh, just was a fine rookie year. He, they played their power game almost entirely to the right, and Brown was a big part of that, obviously, with Yonda pivoting through that hole and, and Brown either making a kick out or a seal there. And uh, I, I see nothing but positive and uh, good rookie year, in terms of the grades. I'm with you. I mean, he came in, took over for James Hurst, who actually wasn't playing, you know, terribly when he was at right tackle. Uh, you and I have talked before. He was getting getting a fair amount of help uh, in terms of, you know, chip blocks from, from running backs or tight ends or that kind of thing. But Orlando Brown came in and really just solidified that position and, and, and took it over, you know, solidified himself as a starter. And uh, if you can get a starting right tackle where the Ravens got him, uh, for you know the, the foreseeable future, uh, you got to look at that as a win. Uh, obviously, there's some technique things. That's true of any player, right? Particularly along the offensive line, because there's so much technique and fundamental work. But uh, just the physical ability is there, um, and I love his demeanor. I think he's got a, a similar kind of demeanor on the field to his dad. Uh, always kind of looking to finish guys and, and and sort of get some some extra shots in when he can and. I love to see that uh, in offensive linemen. Yeah, you know, that's a very similar rookie year to Michael Orr at right tackle. And Michael Orr, you know, people forget because obviously his career turned into a ski slope shortly after that in terms of his production, even though he stayed around the league for a number of years. But when he was a right tackle in his rookie year, he was one hell of a player and a big-time finisher in terms of punishing players to the echo of the whistle. And, I, you know, we did see a fair amount of that from Orlando this year, and I would love to see even more. But if you go back to the Carolina game, he had one of the blocks of the year, and I'm forgetting who was the guy, but I think it might have been Horton on the outside, that he pushed all the way out of bounds, and then he drew a personal foul on the guy on the sideline for retaliating for that block. And it was just one of the greatest things I've ever seen from an offensive lineman. I remember that. I remember that play. And I was like, you can't get a better, a better sort of two for one deal there. Right. Yeah. First, you just embarrass this guy and kind of yeah. take his manhood by driving him out of yeah. bounds. And then you get a penalty on the bench. So you just couldn't yeah. ask for anything better. Yeah. yeah that was good. So, so uh, let's uh, talk about the next guys here. we got a couple of running backs uh, to talk about, right? Let's start with Kenneth Dixon. Well, sure. Kenneth Dixon, um, you know, he's the he's the slasher, the off tackle guy. We expect to see a little bit more of that one cut uh, guy. Anyway, I, uh, much better year coming back than I would have expected. And obviously, he's missed games for a variety of reasons now through his career. And I didn't have a, a whole lot of hope that he'd be back and a very productive player. But that's exactly what he was down the stretch for the Ravens. And he's a big part of that one two punch at running back uh, with Gus Edwards. 
Yeah, we talked about it yesterday. Uh, you mentioned it on the defensive show about uh, the best ability is availability, and that's kind of been the big knock on Dixon. But when he's in there, uh, he might be their most complete running back in terms of rushing and receiving. Now, not pass protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually would probably give that to Ty Montgomery right now. But in terms of his running style and sort of being a combination of, say, Collins and Gus Edwards, right? He's got a little bit of a slash style to him at times. He certainly got a run-through contact and sort of maintain balance through contact style that you might see in a bigger back like uh, Gus Edwards. So, and, and, you know, he's a good receiver coming out of the backfield. So I think he's probably the most well-rounded, most well-rounded in terms of running and, and, and receiving. But again, uh, can you count on him? I mean, that's, that's been the issue throughout his, his early, uh, his young career. So hopefully he's put that to bed. Maybe that's just some sort of youthful immaturity and, and maybe now he becomes a guy that they can depend on. Got to clean up some of the fumbles too, though. Um, that's that's an issue at times. Pretty uh, You never want to see running backs fumble, but he's had some untimely ones uh, in yeah. particular. So that's something he's got. I know we'll talk about fumbling uh, probably more <laughs> as this goes on. Yeah, not, well, it won't take us too long to get to the to get to the fumbling issues, I don't think. <laughs> Gus Edwards, uh, another guy just built to play with Lamar Jackson. I mean, wonderful inside power runner to pair up with the way Lamar Jackson can freeze the outside defenders. You know, cut down on the amount that they can pinch, force other people to fill those gaps where they're going to probably meet offensive linemen who are start with double teams on the inside, and then they may meet a tight end, they may meet a pulling player, they may meet, uh, uh, you know, just just uh, Gus Edwards, and that's a hell of a guy to meet. So a uh, good chance for uh, Gus did very well, and it's an offense that's very well tailored to him. I've often asked the question, though, Gus Edwards is an undrafted guy. He's not particularly special other than he's big, and he weighs 238, and he can run downhill, and he seems to lean into contact well. But what if they had a Leonard Fournette or another guy with a really top pedigree as a pure power back who also had some speed? Then I think that the offense, particularly the running part of it and the passing game, too, because there's there's, you know, an impact there. But particularly a running offense gets even scarier. I mean, I don't know if that's possible. I mean, for a while there, they were ripping off 200 yard games. So I don't know if it can even get scarier than where it was, but I think it could. Uh, with a talented running back like that. But you know what What uh, the Gus Edwards situation sort of reminded me of? It reminded me of RG3 and Alfred Morris. It seemed like a very similar sort of setup, right, where Morris wasn't uh, you know, particularly special from an athletic standpoint, but because of the threat that RG3 posed and because of his sort of straight straight ahead, no-nonsense no style, uh, when you're you're in their, their read game and uh, the running back is typically going to get uh, the dive, you know, uh, run there if if the read presents itself. You've got a guy who gets straight downfield, right, straight upfield, no nonsense, doesn't zig, doesn't zag, runs through contact, and so it was very similar. I think was a, there was a lot of parallels for me uh, with Lamar and RG three and sort of what RG three did uh, when he really was at the top of his game uh, to, uh, with, with with the offense. So. Um, uh, I don't want to short shrift Gus. Uh, I, I don't want to take anything away from him and say what well, was all about Lamar because I think Gus is a good back, and I think he did some things on his own even before RG3 got in. I mean, he got some carries when Flacco was still in, and I think he showed some flashes even then of uh, of what kind of ability he had. Yeah, he really did jump forward with his first decent, really good game when Lamar came in, but you're right. He had a few carries before that. Um, we come to the biggest man on the roster, Lamar Jackson, obviously, and what he did for the offense. 
Whatever you think of Lamar as a passer or whether his running is sustainable, I think you have to at least start with the admission that Lamar Jackson completely changed this offense and he, and he made a lot of players better, even if he himself does not necessarily compete statistically with any of the top quarterbacks. Yeah, for me, that's one of the things that you look at, particularly from a leadership position like the quarterback position, is can you make players around you better? Right. And I think he did that. Now, does he do it in the same way as sort of your traditional prototype pocket passer? No, he doesn't. He's got a very different style. Uh, a lot of people sort of think it's it's a run first style. I actually don't think that's true with him as a passer. I actually think he does a good job keeping his eyes downfield, working through progressions and really seeing the field. I think because he ran as much as he did, the most in history, I believe, of any quarterback. <laughs> he had to go back to Bobby Douglas uh, to find another quarterback who, who ran more than Lamar did. But I think what you've got to keep in mind is the prevalence of the zone read game, right? So, and how that can skew those numbers. Because now the quarterback always has the option to run, right? Whereas on design run plays, that's taken away from him, right? A design run to give to the running back. That's op that option is off the table for him. So if he always has the option to run, depending on what the defense presents, sometimes he's going to end up running it more than than he or, or certainly the coaches probably would want him to. So I think that's something that people have to sort of keep in mind. But I think no matter how you frame it, you're right. Those carries have to come down. I mean, he just cannot run the ball at that rate. I think it was close to, I don't know, was 13, 14 carries a game, maybe higher than that if you averaged it out over his seven games. Yeah, we can we can certainly look that up while we're while we're doing this here. But uh, yeah, he uh, the thing that I think when, when thinking about this going forward is that he, those carries have to be reduced somehow, and the, the ball has to get to some other playmaker in space. So the Ravens would obviously really like to pick up a very productive slot receiver. You know, Edelman and and Welker drove that New England offense for years. They may already have the tight end, and they're just not throwing it to him as much as they want. With Andrews and Hurst, obviously both pretty good targets for for Lamar. But they're going to also need a running back who can catch the ball, and I think that's something they've missed for a while now, is that there, there's, there hasn't been a guy. Uh, Danny Woodhead looked like he could be the guy for that first drive of 2017, and then he disappeared because, you know, he served for the rest of the year effectively. Um, they, need a, they need a guy, a more durable guy, hopefully a Darren Sproles type, a guy who can Larry Centers, you know, you can pick all the good receiving running backs of all time who didn't or weren't necessarily good at running the ball. I take any of them at this point and and just have a threat there. Maybe if I had to ask for one other thing, I'd like him to be a little bit of a pass blocker to go with that. Absolutely. And um that's a key part, uh key role uh in any offense, particularly in the passing game. And that's one of the things I thought Woodhead really excelled at. He was great yeah. in pass protection, not good great in pass protection. Uh, but one thing uh, I did want to also note about Lamar, because I think this gets uh, sort of underappreciated sometimes. Obviously, his impact on the running game was undeniable. I think any fan can see that. But sometimes people forget about his impact on the passing game, particularly the defense, because he does a couple of things. He limits coverages, right? So think about man coverage. Um, sometimes you hear it called two man, where you just have two deep safeties and everybody else is playing man. So when Everybody else turns their back to run with their guys. He can just take off, right? And so if you go back and you really study their games, they didn't see a lot of two-man because the defensive coordinators knew if you play that coverage against him and you give him an alley, he'll take right. off, right? And then the other thing is the pass rush. Guys kind of tend to get into that must-rush, contain rush 
sort of mind frame where they come up field a couple of steps and then kind of just hold and look because they want to keep him in. They don't want to get him out. Uh, and sometimes people forget that he actually does have those advantageous impacts on the passing game. Yeah, and, and if it, to the extent he could use his progression skills to go through those reads with the extra time, he's got that terrific. Also to the extent, and we saw a fair amount of this, that it can create that secondary pocket, the Ravens need to surround him with some players who find secondary opportunities. And I think one of the things the Ravens are going to have to figure out is, and I, I bet Roman is a good guy to figure this out, is how to create secondary opportunities that are not the the normal by rules sets. So the normal by rules set are, you know, you, you send guys to the same sideline with the rollout and the guy on the, the, the closest receiver goes to the sideline, et cetera. You know the rules. Anyway, there needs to be more in terms of creating across-the-field opportunities. Throw out the rules with Jackson about not throwing the ball over the middle again. Find open holes over the middle again. That's part of the offense. And you know, maybe it's taking a little risk. Maybe it, maybe it really shouldn't be. But Jackson should still be able to throw to an open spot on the field and have a reasonable opportunity to get the ball on the mark to a receiver who's, who's attempting to make a play after the route has ended. Yeah, and we see that in other offenses. You see it with Russell Wilson. Mm -hmm. You see it with Aaron Rodgers. You see it with Roethlisberger. So um, that potential was certainly there to construct that, right? I mean, obviously, there's there's always going to be a little bit of a sandlot element to some of that. But mm -hmm. the, the, the quarterbacks and the wide receivers who do it the best, you can tell they've worked on it. It's not completely sandlot. You know, there's a little bit of a structure to it. Uh, when they do it. And I think they can get there uh, with, with Lamar, but you're right. You've got to find the right kinds of receivers to sort of pair up with that too. Yeah. All so right. I think we've got one guy left in this uh, young producer category, a guy I know who's near and dear to both of our hearts and uh, Ronnie Stanley. Yeah. Terrific player now, obviously you know, he's one of the guys we talk about all the guys on defense that are coming due with their fourth year coming up. But Ronnie Stanley now is entering year four uh, because of the first year option. They'll have them for one more year and it won't be, it'll be expensive, but not all that expensive. And then he's going to command a very big contract, obviously at the end of that fifth year, they may sign him a year early. We'll see, but uh, he's clearly the foundation that they hope to get with the sixth overall pick. I think he's completely delivered on that pedigree. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Um, Good, young, athletic left tackles don't come around every day, and they don't come cheap uh, when it's when it's time for them to get to that second contract. But uh, the thing that I like about Ronnie this year, and, and we saw it a little bit of last year too, is I think early on maybe some people were kind of starting to get a little down on him because of injuries. But the one thing that you've seen him do the last two years is really fight through those injuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and continue to come back in games or even just stay in games or start games where maybe he, he's on the injury report a couple of times during the week, but he still battles through. Uh, and, and that's what you want to see on the offensive line, right? Those guys are all about uh, intelligence, toughness, working together. And so to see him uh, sort of grow into that toughness uh, sort of sort of mindset uh, with guys like Yonda, you know, who never misses, you know, never misses games unless there's a, a significant injury. Um, I really like to see that uh, from Ronnie this year. Yeah, so you make it a great point there. And one of the things about Ronnie that a little bit was taken away from his game this year, I mean, he still still has great mobility for left tackle. Very few tackles, period, right or left, but it's it's more common that right tackles are really not able to contribute on the backside of a run play. So if the if the run goes the other way, they really can't 
do much of anything. Sometimes coaches don't want you to cut block, which is the obvious choice, but they can't really get upfield. And even if it's just blocking corner, which is the kind of thing that changes a 25-yard run into a 50-yard run, uh, they can't even really do that. Well, Ronnie Stanley, when the Ravens run power to the right, one of the benefits they get is that he has the quickness to get into level two, get into level three, and help make that big downfield block that can really change the change the course of a play for an extra 25 yards. So I, I like that about the game. I really like that he's constantly able to contribute, and he has very few missed blocks on the backside of run plays as I score it. Yeah, you see that on the backside of zone run plays, too where he has to kind of climb up to level two and try to cut off that backside linebacker because oftentimes uh, on outside zone, there's going to be a cutback lane. And so if you can get that backside linebacker along with the guys up front sort of taking mm-hmm. care of like the three technique on the backside, that creates that lane. And so the first part of that is, you know, sort of what happens at the uh, the down lineman level. Can you get that sealed off? But then if you can reach that linebacker, you've got a chance for some really big explosive run plays. And having a guy like Stanley who can do that gives you that opportunity. Yeah, and with the, with the read option, too, that linebacker may be frozen for longer by Lamar. Depending on who's got the contained responsibility on that side, he may he, you may Stanley may have an extra chance to uh, – find that guy in level two if the linebacker is frozen for an extra second. Yeah, we saw that this year. We saw that uh, throughout uh, the games that Lamar started, particularly in those first couple of games when when it was kind of all new, right, to the opponents. Those guys were frozen, and it really gave uh, Roddy a chance to get up on them and sort of get in position to sort of seal them off because they've got their eyes in the backfield, and they don't even realize he's coming until it's too late. Oh. All right. Well, outstanding. Well, let's move on to the next category. That's the developmental category. Now, we like to spend a little time with each of these players because their development is really key to beating the cap. In a sense, you're young producers. You think you've got them. They're always going to stay young producers, particularly at the running back position. That didn't end up being the case. You know, Gus Edwards would have been someone I would have put in the transitional category. Kenneth Dixon was there as well, I believe, because he'd had so many problems in terms of availability. And Alex Collins was one of the young producers, and he's dropped to the developmental category, among others. But I want to go through the list here quickly of the names, and then we'll, we'll kind of go through them one at a time, and we'll, we'll talk through some points on them. But uh, Bradley Bozeman has not quite got his starting position yet. I still have Alex Collins in the developmental category. He's, he's got an RFA this year, and it's actually kind of questionable how the Ravens will deal with that. So we'll see where that ends up. Uh, Jermaine Illuminor, Hayden Hurst, Jordan Lasley, who still hasn't played, Chris Moore, Greg Sinat, also this whole year on IR, and Matt Skura. Yeah, so I guess we can we can sort of jump around, or if you want to touch on all of them, we can we can sort of do it in order. So I'll, I'll start it off with uh, with Bozeman. Uh, was pleasantly surprised uh, by the impact that he had this year. Uh, again, I know that you uh, score and chart the O line more closely than I do, but just sort of uh, the eye test and seeing him in games when he came in. Uh, at guard seemed to be a guy who had better mobility than I expected, uh, particularly when he pulled, seems to do a pretty good job uh, squaring up targets and actually making blocks when he pulled. Um, like any young offensive lineman, there were things in terms of maybe not completely understanding what he was seeing at times or what defensive lines were doing or um, sort of second level blitzes. That's to be expected with any young uh, young player, particularly along the offensive line. But he showed some real promise as a guy who maybe can compete uh, as early as next year for, for a starting guard spot. I, I would think he'd, he'd be in there for a starting guard or center spot, meaning competing, certainly, next can't matter what. So 230 snaps as a rookie. I've got him for 1.66 sacks, so that's uh, about half of what 
um, Brown had, and he had 1.33 like Brown, to, uh, two times two thirds in the. I'm sorry, I think it was a full one and a one third against the Chargers, and uh, otherwise outstanding year coming into that game. Had an F against the Chargers. But he was right in at the low A level as I was grading it out block for block coming into that game. And even after that, he graded out a .82, which would be a, a B for the year uh, with adjustment. And really only had that one mulligan against the Chargers. He didn't have a great game against uh, against Atlanta either. But otherwise, he was terrific. A's and B's in all the other games. So uh, I'm very excited about, about what the Ravens have here. they got value again uh, towards the bottom of the draft. And I think he's going to be a good one. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, sort of moving on to this next guy, you mentioned him earlier, Alex Collins. He's an interesting guy uh, with in, in light of everything that happened this year and the way things kind of shook out for him. The unquestioned sort of breakout offensive spark last mm-hmm. year, and then this year just I don't know if you could get off to a slower start than he got off to this year before he suffered an injury. and. A lot of different things, I think, contributed to it. It wasn't just about him. I mean, some people pointed to him, you know, sort of uh, looking to bounce a lot of plays to the outside. I mean, he's kind of had that proclivity throughout his young career. But you could look at the offensive line. You could look at some scheme things. I mean, there just was sort of a confluence of circumstances, I think, that contributed to kind of that slow start before he got injured. And now, like you said, it's a matter, it's, it's, it's a question of where does he fit, you know, in this running game now? Yeah, and he may not. He's not the greatest fit with Lamar, given the outside-outside is not really necessarily what you want. You want a quick hitter. You want a downhill runner. And and maybe also want another a, a, a tackle breaker is who he was early in the year. That's what that's what was his bread and butter, because he was getting a, a lot of early contact on those plays, and he was breaking some tackles. But you know, honestly, I'm not sure if he really fits, and I don't know how the Ravens are going to address his RFA tag right now. They can give him a low tender, which means they can lose him for nothing. If some other team wants to come in and pay him, let's say, uh, $7 million for two years or something, which could happen. Uh, I don't think that would be an unreasonable kind of kind of contract that he might get offered. Um, the Ravens probably would just have to let him go at that point, and they don't receive anything in terms of compensation. If they put a second-round tender on him, they, they have to – pay him, what, three and a half million or something. And I don't see them doing that. I don't see them being wanting to do that given the nature of their other backs. What really would have been great for Collins is if he could have found a way to maintain some of those receiving skills he seemed to have in Seattle. In Seattle, I think he was thrown at 13 times and caught 12 of those balls. Well, that was one of the things I looked at and said, maybe we got a pass catcher here. We didn't really see much of that in Baltimore. He wasn't really utilized as a receiver very much. And if he had been, seems like he'd be the kind of guy you get out in space on the edge and maybe he could do more for you. But since that's not the case, I don't know where we go from here. I, you know, I, I would have loved if he could have turned into the third down back instead of Montgomery, say. But now right now, I mean, Montgomery's ahead of him, I'd say, as a pass blocker. The Collins threw some good chip blocks this last year. And I just am not convinced that he'll ever really have the kind of the same kind of receiving skills. Yeah, it's going to be tough for him, I think, to carve out a role in that backfield. I, I love the talent. Uh, one of the things I was concerned about, though, coming off of last year was how would he adjust when defense is adjusted to him? Uh, because I think it was it was pretty clear that he had a, a, a preference to want to bounce runs outside. And yeah. so once defenses see that and they sort of start to align and position guys to 
take that outside run away and force you to run between the tackles. Can you adjust your game to do that? And I think he did struggle with some of that a little bit early on, but there could be some potential there for that third, um, that sort of third down back roll that you mentioned. It doesn't look great right now, but like you said, he, he showed some things in pass protection. Uh, I think he's a bit like you, you mentioned, I think he's a better receiver than maybe people realize. Obviously he's not, uh, former wide receiver type of guy like Ty Montgomery, but I think as a, as a running back, he's got some pretty decent receiving skills, and that could be an interesting competition uh, for for that role. Right. I mean, one one of the things that you always have to be cognizant of is running backs get injured, and so having an extra one on the roster would make sense in a lot of ways to make sure that you can still maintain a good running game. Now, the Ravens have proved fairly adept these last couple of years at finding a lot of value on their own. Uh, taxi squad, I guess, an old time usage in the, or the <laughs> practice squad uh, players. But uh, but anyway, they they got Collins off the scrap heap because of the fumbling problems. He certainly turned his career around and was a hell of a back here for two years now or for a year and a half anyway. And now I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's around this year or not. We'll have to see. Yeah, yeah, that will be interesting. Um, another guy on this list who I thought was a, a pleasant surprise on the old line was uh, Jermaine Illuminor. Uh, I think there was maybe a little bit of uh, sort of a, a down perception on him uh, after last season, sort of where did he fit? He didn't seem to really perform too well at guard last year. And I don't know if he played tackle in college, so, um, but I don't know if people really saw him uh, as, as being able to, to, you know, hold a, kind of hold his own in that role at the pros, but in sort of his limited opportunities at left tackle this year, I thought he was really solid. Uh, I mean, I was really surprised with uh, some of the strides that he made. And every time he comes up, I always kind of give this a shout out. I'm not getting any endorsement for it or anything, but there's a guy uh, who works with offensive line players, Duke Miniweather, um, Big Duke 50 on Twitter, if you follow that kind of thing. And he kind of had this offensive line uh, summit that he put together over the offseason last year. So a lot of the top offensive linemen in the league sort of coming together and uh, talking about technique and talking about strategy and what they're seeing from other uh, defensive players around the league. And uh, Jermaine was there. He was one of the guys who participated in that. And uh, I like to think that, you know, maybe that had a little bit of an impact on uh, on how he played this year. Yeah, I mean, good for him. I, I love to hear stories of players investing in themselves during the offseason, investing in their own careers. I mean, nothing more valuable in terms of turning around. I know they wanted they want to wind down. They want to do their own thing when they have time off and whatnot. But boy, your entire career is determined over a very short period. You, you, maintaining focus on that for as much time as you can would be great. Illuminor, the way I scored it, had 89 scored snaps for the year, um, .82 at tackle, and really his only deductions were in that Pittsburgh game for a couple of penalties he had. And I don't know if you remember this, but he had a holding penalty. It might have been also a false start or another uh, uh, penalty of some sort. I think it was a pre-snap penalty, so probably was a false start. And other than that, he was outstanding in that Pittsburgh game. He only got a C grade overall, but he only gave up half a pressure in 56 snaps. Uh, Carolina came in and made 18 of his 19 blocks in that game in relief of Stanley. So when they didn't have Stanley, they still had you know some pretty good play, and they weren't they weren't shy about putting him in at guard um, on an as needed basis after that. And uh, he played out the season largely on the active roster. In fact, I think he might have been active for all the all the remaining games. So I'd really have to go through it because there obviously was a lot of in and out with Hurst and Lewis and whatnot that might have left Illuminor uh, not active for one game. But uh, really, honestly, very big, surprising season in, in limited opportunities, admittedly. But uh, I definitely cannot rule him out as a future with two years still left under contract. 
No, those guys are very versatile, right? Guys who can play multiple spots on the offensive line, um, particularly if you're talking about a guy who can play an outside spot like tackle in addition to guard. And even when he was at tackle in those limited reps, I don't remember him getting a ton of help. I think that they felt confident no. that he could kind of stay out there and hold his own, and he did. I mean, it's Bud Dupree, and, and I can, you know, can kind of visualize it right now, but he has a really good ability to step out and beat speed rushers. And I just, I, I was very impressed by it. And there's one play, it ended up being one of the most complex sacks of the year that is in that Pittsburgh article that I did on that. But he basically blocked Dupree all the way around the pocket, blocked him to the ground, and then Dupree got up off the ground and, and got the sack after just constant pressure was being felt by Flacco uh, on that play. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I, I the bad thing was that he kind of gave up on the play. The good thing was that he really did his job getting him all the way around the pocket and then pancaking him. Uh, it's, it's just a strange set of circumstances, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, I agree. I, I think he, he definitely looked like he had the feet to play left tackle, which I wouldn't have, wouldn't have uh, thought possible. One more thing um, I would just want to point out. I generally hate swing men. You, you like them when, they, when they're when – they're but whenever I hear the term swing man, it's like – you're not really a tackle, then you're really a guard. You don't. You're 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 a guard tackle because you don't really have the feet to play tackle, or you're a guard tackle because you can't handle the speed rush or whatever it might be. But but anyway, I we've had too many of those in Baltimore. I mean, Hurst was a was a is a swing man who's really like a guard, I think. And the 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 outcome of this year wouldn't tell you that. But but in, in terms of where he played last year in his prior career, I would say that's that's really who he is. And the Ravens had any number of other guys over the years who are these guard tackle combinations that really can't play tackle. But Luminor seems to be that rare cat who might be able to play either. Yeah, and I think that's what could really make him valuable. If you continue to see him sort of improve, like you said, the 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 pre snap penalties. Obviously, you'd like to see him clean that kind of thing up. But if you're a guy who's not just a break in you know break in case of emergency tackle, but like a legitimate uh, backup tackle who can also bump inside to guard. Uh, obviously, you can only carry so many guys on the active roster on game day. And if you've got a guy who can play both of those positions at, uh, you know, replacement level, or maybe even a tick above replacement level, I hope that's, so. a pretty, that's a pretty valuable thing. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep us moving. I know I tend to go a little long on guys because uh, I, I just love talking about these guys in a lot of ways. But here's one where I think I, I don't think I have a whole lot. Jordan Lastly, uh, I don't I don't think I have a, lo- a whole lot there just because obviously we didn't get a chance to see him uh, during the season. Uh, we only had uh, the, the sample size in the preseason and in training camp. And Although there were some things I saw during some of those preseason practices that, uh, you know, it, it gave me some some encouragement. He looks like a guy who uh, has some ability to get open in terms of route running and maybe has some yak ability too. Um, you know, drops are were a concern coming out of UCLA. But he looks like maybe one of those guys who could be that extend the play sort of pairing option for Lamar uh, maybe down the road. Yeah, and one of the nice things about Lasley and Lamar last year is that they played together a lot because they, as second team guys, they were getting more of the reps together on the on the back end. Um, yeah, I I could see that. I, I could also see him being absolutely nothing at this point. We really he, they kept him on the roster the entire year. That's probably a good sign that they didn't risk him to the practice squad at some point, or he probably would have been picked up by a team that really knows how to develop receivers and they you know had a great career. But anyway, he's he's a draft pick who looks like he still might have something, whereas I'm not feeling the same way about Jaleel Scott, who we'll get to a little later, uh, who really had a terrible preseason after the pick and looks to look to be a uh, you know not not.
not pick worthy, frankly, at, at, at that point. Let me let me bump yeah. it to another player though that we we passed on was Hayden Hurst. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh man, I don't know how we did that, but yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about the number you know the first round pick, right? That's 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 pretty important. Um, probably not the the production that people were expecting from Hayden this year, particularly relative to his draft position, but. Um, you know, and people have told me I, I make an excuse, but I'm going to do this anyway. Uh, injury is a factor. I mean, I don't think there's any way to deny that coming off of a foot injury. I mean, he he had foot surgery right in season and came mm-hmm. back and played. That's not something that you see uh, uh, too often in terms of not not that it doesn't happen, but then what's the performance like after it happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think. That in combination with also being a rookie, being a rookie at one of the more difficult positions uh, to learn uh, because of all the different responsibilities. You're in the run game. You're in the pass game. You're in special teams. You know, there's a lot of things that you have to pick up as a rookie tight end. So I think all of those things kind of maybe contributed to him having a little bit of a slower start. But I'll tell you what, I think he's a natural hands catcher. I think he's got really, really good hands. Uh, people maybe look at Mark Andrews and say, well, hey, look at what he did. He was able to kind of produce. But I think they used Mark Andrews in a different way than they were using Hayden Hurst. I think they saw Hayden as kind of more that traditional wide tight end, a sort of all-around guy who can line up in line, who can split out, you know, who can who can sort of do all those things. And that's a lot, you know, on your plate. So um, I'm still hopeful. I know the age is a factor, too. People say, hey, you know, this guy's a little bit older coming into the league, and so we don't have a lot of time to sort of see it from him. But I'm still encouraged uh, that he, he could be a really important cog in their offense. You know, that is a, it's a good point about his age. And one of the things about Hayden Hurst is his age and his physical maturation do not seem to match for me. So, I mean, he's a 25-year-old rookie, obviously, but that also should mean you're coming into the league and you look more like the inline tight ends the Ravens already have in Max Williams and Nick Boyle. And he doesn't have to be Nick Boyle because Nick Boyle is a, is a huge dude. And, I, you know, to be a receiver, honestly, probably wants to be a little smaller than that. But, but Hurst, if he's going to have some of that back and forth inline tight end or in motion tight end, I'll, I'll say, in the, the way the Ravens offense has run the last eight games of this year, uh, you know, he, he's going to have a lot of blocks he has to throw in the middle of that formation. And he's just got to be a little a little bigger, a little more muscular. And I think that really restricted his snap count. So you mentioned that Patrick Ricard might be impacted by the future of Nick Boyle and Max Williams. So I think also that Hayden Hurst's responsibilities could change fairly dramatically if either or both of those guys is not around next year. Now, I, th- I personally think they'll sign one of those two. I think they'll, they'll they and frankly the Ravens have some leverage in this deal in saying we can really we can really take either one of them they're both pretty good blockers we'd like to keep both of them and uh, you know offer them both the same contract maybe even yeah and, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a big Nick Boyle fan big okay. Nick Boyle fan it's like having an extra offensive lineman in there uh, who can also go out and catch passes uh, so I'm a big 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 fan of Nick Boyle uh, one other thing I, I wanted to piggyback on something you said about Hayden Hurst in, in terms of his point of attack blocking. Very important. Uh, you know, if, if that's how he's going to be used in this offense, that's going to be one of his responsibilities. Got to improve there. But, you know, it reminds me, um, there's this book called Collisions Low Crossers that followed the New York Jets when Rex Ryan was the coach there. And so there's a conversation in there between Rex and one of his assistant coaches, and they're talking about a player in the draft, and they're talking about him maybe not being strong enough. And they're like, well, look, what do you have more time than anything else to do uh, as a rookie in the NFL, lift weights. 
right? Mm-hmm. You've got nothing else to do but to get stronger. So when they're looking at this guy and all of the different things and different ways that they'd like to see him improve, they're like, well, I'm not worried about strength because he's going to have plenty of time to do that. And we're going to get him in here with our strength and conditioning guy. And I think the Ravens have a pretty good guy. Uh, now I know there was some, uh, maybe some uncertainty some years ago about uh, people in their strength and conditioning program, but I don't think we've heard that over the last couple of years now. So I, I'm I'm pretty encouraged that Hayden can get there. I don't think he'll, he, he's not going to be Nick Boyle. If people are looking at him to, to, to be that kind of blocker, I'd be surprised if he ever got to that level of a blocker, but think about a guy like Jason Witten, Bill Parcells, when Jason Witten first came into the league was like, this guy can't block at all. <laughs> And then as his career progressed, he turned into, you know, a pretty reliable blocker. I can't I can't map a Hall of Fame progression to him, even even if they maybe looked similar at rookies when Witten was probably 22 and Hurst is 25. Uh, you know, I can't map a Hall of Fame. Well, no, just from a blocking standpoint. Yeah, not not overall career, but just can you go from a guy who did not block or was not a great blocker to a guy who can become a pretty reliable blocker? Yeah, I think that I'm could not, happen. I'm, I'm not going to beat this dead horse any longer than one more comment. And that's to say that at tw- his his years remaining of progression physically are very limited. It's He doesn't have five years of physical projection progression left at this point in his career. He may have two. He may not have any. You know, so I really, I who he is as a as a physical specimen is a lot of who he is right now. That's that's one of the reasons I'm not crazy about the draft pick. I hope he can deliver on the receiving promise, and maybe he ends up being a guy they flex out more and more and more as time moves forward. And maybe he's a guy they they can still use in the uh, in the in motion tight end blocking and make some of those point of attack blocks. But I I'm honestly a little bit skeptical of that I, he's he's still number one draft pick. I really hope he works out. I'm just a little skeptical of the situation. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, well, you're right. We we spend a lot of time on Hayden. So let's move on to a guy that I don't I don't think we'll have any disagreement on Chris Moore. Uh, I think we both love Chris Moore. Uh, I think uh, he's a guy that gives the team a lot of contributions in a lot of different areas. Obviously, sort of made his bones on special teams, uh, was always around the ball, always found a way to make plays on special teams. And then as his role has grown a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, uh, lining up at receiver on offense, seems to still make plays, always seems to find a way to make a play uh, whenever he's given opportunities. Yeah, of all the Ravens receivers, he is the best bad ball catcher. So the uh, ball is thrown a little off target. He'll do the most to try and get that ball. You know, we saw one of the big ones uh, on the reach behind grab. I think it was against the Bengals during that comeback when they were down eight. Yeah. And, and you know, it just it really typified his season. Now, one of the things he needs to do is get open more or be in the quarterback's progressions maybe more is a better way to put it because he's getting 45, 50 snaps a game. I know some of that, they want him in there as a run blocker. But the other thing, you know, he's just got to have more yards per route run, and he seemed to be still getting one or two targets per game even when he was in there for 50 snaps a game. Yeah, I hope they'll move him around uh, to some of those. uh, The way I think about it is uh, there are certain – positions where you can line up pre-snap where you're going to have uh, a little bit more of an advantage in terms of the progressions just from where you line up. And so I I used to make this point about Brashard Perryman. If you line a guy up wide outside the numbers on every play and running 30, 40 yards down the field, that's a low percentage opportunity, right? Just by definition, uh, just because of the, the level of difficulty of even making that throw, assuming the guy is open. But oftentimes you're not open. 
uh, when you run that route. So I'd like to see them. Uh, and I think they did it at times. I don't want to say they didn't, but I'd like to see them get some more of those opportunities inside, maybe letting uh, line up at the Z receiver uh, where he gets to go in motion a little bit more and then get some of those free releases. So uh, if he can get some more of those opportunities, I think we'll get to see him uh, really sort of even take that next step. He keeps taking a step every year. He seems to take that next step and that next step. But I think we could really see uh, a breakout if he could get some of those opportunities. Yeah, that, that would be great. Now, I, I want to point to one thing you just said, is that the outside the numbers being a low opportunity. Well, obviously, with Jackson, his weakness seems to be throwing outside the numbers. He maybe doesn't like to throw outside the numbers. Maybe he doesn't throw too often outside the numbers. He did throw the, the touchdown to Crabtree, which is a beautiful shot. Uh, down the field against uh, the Chargers. But when you're playing a lot of cover zero and cover one opposition because they're so worried about you running the ball, you have to be willing to throw that ball deep outside the numbers. You have to be willing to take that chance and trust your receivers to come down with that football. So I would think, you know, being outside being outside the numbers for a Perriman, if he were still in this offense, for example, would be the place you'd really want to be. But I don't yeah, if you if you get those kinds of coverages, I totally agree. When you get that coverage, yeah, those are where you're going to have your shots because uh, the middle is either they're going to drop a guy, so it wouldn't be a true cover zero. It might be like a cover six, but they drop kind of a guy to sort of cut any kind of short inside route you would throw, or they truly do bring all the guys, and it is cover zero, and uh, you're going to have interior rushers in your face, too, with their hands up. So it's also hard to sort of target the middle of the field. So you're right. Against those coverages, I agree. That's probably where you have to take your shot. And I also agree that, yeah, that's not Lamar's strength right now. That throw outside, deep outside the numbers uh, is not where he's the most comfortable. I think he's more comfortable in the middle of the field uh, right now. And I actually think it's more of a mechanical thing than anything else for him. Uh, I think that because he's so good with his upper body mechanics in terms of just his arm action on his throw. I think that's why he's so accurate in the middle of the field because he's using only his arm. And so those are shorter throws too. So you don't necessarily have to incorporate your lower body, but you've really got to incorporate your lower body and drive those throws deep outside the number, uh, the numbers. And I think that's a part of his game that he still needs to sort of develop more consistently. All right, let's so move I, on. Let's move on to the next player. I'm sorry, cut you off there, but uh, Greg Sinat, the the left tackle, basketball background. They drafted you know, to be a, a traditional backup left tackle. Now, hopefully, they've got a problem on their hands in terms of having maybe one too many tackles on the roster. Yeah, very athletic guy. Uh, I think we got to see some 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 limited action from him in the preseason, but when he was in there, you can see the athleticism. You can see just how fluid of a mover he is for a man that size. And so you're right, that's sort of the prototypical uh, left tackle profile that you look for now. So um, hopefully uh, he can uh, sort of use this past year, and I, I hope he did, to sort of develop some more strength because I think that was kind of one of the things that jumped out was really – uh, he struggled to kind of anchor against Bull Rush, which mm -hmm. is not unusual for, for guys who come in with that athletic profile and kind of high cut kind of guys. But I think if he can, you know, sort of develop in the weight room and then all of the technique stuff that comes along with playing O-line, you could have something on your hands uh, pretty valuable there. And then you throw uh, the conversation we had in earlier about Illuminor into that mix. You could have a pretty good uh, core of, of, of backup players that, you know, if you need to go that route, which you will over the course of the season, it's just the way it goes. Uh, you don't have to necessarily worry about uh, falling off the table in terms of, you know, uh, run blocking and, and pass protection. 
Right. I mean, you, you expect a drop off from the two tackles the Ravens have, who are two of their better players, to, to whoever goes on. But those two guys, honestly, are providing above replacement level uh, value if uh, if things work out as as we would hope. So that's exciting. Uh, last player on the list is Matt Skura. Uh, go ahead. You start. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I know you guys had Matt on the show. Uh, that was one one of my favorite episodes. I always love when you get to hear from players because they get to tell you some pretty cool stories uh, uh, from their unique perspective. I thought Matt played well, and I look, I'll, I'll I'll raise my hand on this one. Before the season started, I went on Twitter and I said, look, I don't know if they're going to be able to run the ball effectively if he's uh, the starting center, and he made me eat a whole bunch of crow. Uh, because I think he played pretty well this year. Obviously, it wasn't perfect, but nothing ever is. But he really exceeded my expectations, and uh, I'm actually encouraged. I mean, I think that there'll be, obviously, a a competition for center next year. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, he's locked that position down, but I think that he probably goes in as the presumptive starter going into the offseason, and then, you know, we kind of see where it goes from there. Yeah, that's where I'd be, too. I think he is the plurality choice at this point to make it so I, I i was at this point last year as well um but it, going into 2019 i'd say you know skura 40 percent bozeman 30 percent the field 30 percent might be a reasonable three-way predictor of where it might end or maybe it's 40 30, 45 30 and and 25 but it's it's if i had to guess it'd be in that range i mean there's always a chance the ravens will draft a center and if they draft a really dominant center he, he's going to get every opportunity to to start from day one uh, I, you know, I would think, or start very soon in his career. Uh, Matt did not finish the season strong, which is a shame. When we had him on the show, he just had a great run of games, and he, and he was, uh, you know, had a Pro Bowl valet that that uh, that was homemade and looked great, and we uh, we really had a lot of fun with that. But he's, but he, but he really was playing extremely well, and he had a difficult last four games of the year, which is unfortunate. And uh, you know, we certainly wish him the best and hope he okay, hope he comes back. A lot of the anchoring questions regarding the run game. I don't think were legitimate. So I had the questions too, by the way. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not the one who proposed them, but I did have the questions if he was going to be able to anchor against some of the really big interior linemen in the, in the AFC North and not get pushed back to the point where you can obstruct the power run game even. Now, it's unusual for a center to be a, a, a mauled that badly, but I've looked at, I've been scoring some old Ravens game and seeing it happening to Mike Flynn, who had a pretty good reputation here for a lot of years, but 2006, the year I'm happy to score right now. He wasn't a very good lineman anymore and had some had some problems specifically with that. I'm looking at old Jeremy Jeremy Zuda time and oh, yeah. Zuda Zuda oh, yeah. had problems with that. So I mean, Skura has not presented that at all. He takes his first step into his block well. He holds the point of attack pretty well initially, at least. He has had some problems, obviously, giving up pressure by bull rush. Uh, that, that, you know, people always talk about him being roller skated back into the pocket, uh, you know, play after play. It's, it's an overstatement. I mean, he, did, he gives up some pressure, um, did not finish the season strong in that regard in terms of giving up pressure. But overall, you know, a C year. And I, I think if you expected more than that from one of the cheapest, best values in the entire on the entire team, I think you'd have been, you know, just kind of fooling yourself. Absolutely. I mean, expectations are a big part of this, uh, just sort of where you start from and, and, you know, how reasonable you are with that. Um, so I think sometimes you start off with these unreasonable expectations and then, you know, the narrative just takes off from there. And and sometimes the reality doesn't match, doesn't match the, uh, I mean, sometimes perception doesn't match the reality uh, when you really study these guys closely. And that's where I found myself. You know, I, I had this sort of perception about it, but then when you really watch the games closely, you're like, you know what? 
this is not as bad as I thought it was. Uh, there actually is some things here to work with. And probably another thing that's a little underrated about him when you have a young quarterback like Jackson is um, sort of making the line calls, right? The mic identifications, handling all of that. A lot of times young quarterbacks are entrusted with doing a lot of that. And I know, you know, a guy like Yonder probably plays a big part in that too along the line because he's seen everything. But if you've got a guy who've done that for you, I mean, it was it was Skura's first year starting, you know, the whole the whole season at center uh, in that offense and is comfortable with that offense and making the calls from that perspective. That has some value, too. It's not that anybody else couldn't learn to do it. Of course, they can. But, you know, that that does have some value if you sort of got a year under your belt doing that in this particular offense. Right. I, I would I would agree with that. I think they really were trying to give Bozeman as much of an opportunity to do that as they could in the preseason. He had the second most snaps on the Ravens during the preseason and might have been close to the second most in, in like all of football. I know that that uh, Brown had about the most because the Ravens played five games and Bozeman was up there as well. So uh, they really did give both of them an opportunity to, to kind of get some time at center. And we heard about Lewis at center and that never really materialized in any meaningful way. in in, uh, in doing that, let's, let's move on to the next category. And we probably should go a little faster here, try and pick this up. Most of these next players are known. It's just a question of where will they end up next year? So the veterans playing for market value, I'll read off the list really quickly. Nick Boyle, uh, who will just be a, he was unrestricted free agent now. John Brown, unrestricted. Robert Griffin, unrestricted. Uh, we have the entire Wolf Pack here. Morgan Cox, Sam Cook, and Justin Tucker. Uh, Ty Montgomery is here, unrestricted free agent. Willie Sneed, Justin, uh, sorry, Justin Carrier said Max Williams, unrestricted free agent, and Marshall Yonda, who is under contract. So a whole lot of guys that the Ravens do not have currently under contract in this group. Um, who would you like to start with? Uh, I pro I, and I, I mentioned this guy earlier. I was going to say Boyle, but I actually think I'm going to switch here midstream and go with, uh, with John Brown. Um, because I don't know if he's going to want to stay here long term. I think there's this conversation that a lot of people have had about this offense. Obviously, wide receivers want to catch the ball. I mean, that's, that's how they make their money. That's how they make their living. And I think you'll see more passing. Uh, from the offense next year. I don't think they'll be quite as run heavy as they were this year, but I think they're always going to skew a little run heavy. If you go back and look at Greg Roman when he served as an offensive coordinator with the 49ers and with the Bills, he's always been towards the bottom of the league in passing attempts. It's just, it's just the nature of his offense. It's what he believes philosophically. So I wonder for a guy who was on a one-year contract, probably kind of wanting to see if he could boost uh, his value around the league coming off of an injury. And it looked that way early on with Flacco at QB. There were some real fireworks between those guys early on. But now I wonder, uh, even though he said that this was the most fun that he'd had in in the NFL, uh, that sounds great. But the NFL is a business. It's not just about having fun. So uh, (laughs) I want him. I'd love to see him come back because I wrote a couple of pieces on him this year. I really think he has – uh, the potential to be sort of like a tier two, tier three sort of number one receiver. He's certainly not your prototypical number one because of size and that kind of thing, but sort of in that next to second tier, third tier in terms of a guy who can do a little bit of everything, not just a deep threat. Uh, I really liked him, but I just don't know uh, if he's going to want to be back next year. I caught only eight of 30 balls in the last seven games of the regular season uh, from Cincinnati through Cleveland. I don't have the Chargers numbers here uh, right away, but but that's that says a lot about uh, you know not really necessarily being on the same page with Jackson, 
probably was getting some more difficult, uh, lower percentage throws, but eight out of 30 ain't good. Let's, let's just put it that way. Um, I, I think the chance of him coming back is actually fairly low. I have it at 40% in the article, and I'm thinking, of, looking at 40%, I'm surprised that I put it that high. But I wonder, I, I do want to talk about this more in terms of who's likely to come back and why. So let's, let's, I go through my percentages if you don't mind for a moment. I think 70% Nick Boyle comes back, John Brown at 40. Robert Griffin, I think, would be would be excellent choice. It's just a matter of what other demand there is for him league-wise, but 70% he comes back. Montgomery, 30%. I think he does actually fit the offense reasonably well, so it's just a matter of is there other demand for him as well, and I think there could be more. Uh, Max Williams at 60%. So those are the, of the of the guys that they don't have under contract. Those are the uh, percentages that I give it. And I kind of think the two that are tied are Williams and Boyle, where – I think they will get one, and they might get two. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, I definitely kind of right there with you on on those other percentages. Like you mentioned, the RG3 thing will really come down to his opportunities and what he wants, you know, if he wants an opportunity to really compete for a starting spot. But, yeah, Max and Nick, uh, I'd love to see them both back. I don't know how realistic that is. Obviously, I probably lean a little bit more towards Boyle just because I think of the two, I think he's probably the little bit better blocker. Um, uh, so that that's sort of just that heartstring thing that I mentioned yesterday between your head and your heart. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, Max has that second-round pedigree. He was a second-round draft pick, and so I don't know how that factors into – uh, how he's perceived around the league. I, I, don't, I don't know if it matters at this point. I think they look at the way it does he's not. Played, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think that it matters. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that, that both of those guys are back. I mean, Max Williams, for a start, you can look at towards the end of the season. I don't think he was hurt. He was a healthy scratch for a couple of games when they went to three tight ends. So I think at least from that perspective, you'd see that they're, they're not really taking that second round uh, into account anymore. And honestly, I thought there was a good chance he was going to be cut coming out of camp. The Ravens roster was incredibly deep. And, you know, they really had to make sacrifices to keep Max Williams. They did. They kept him on at the end of the roster, and they used him to their credit in the when they had four tight ends active at the end of the year. But, uh, you know, he does fill a, a big need for the Ravens as a blocking tight end. And I didn't think he was going to grow into that as a rookie, but it is one area where he's really improved, whereas as a receiver, I think, if anything, over the four years, he's actually kind of regressed. Yeah, and they tend to use him more at that H-back spot than even they use Boyle. Boyle seems to be more the inline point of attack guy, and they want and when they want to have that fullback look, uh, they they tend to use Max. And when you look at the other tight ends, I don't know that either of the other two guys really could do that either. Yeah, and and maybe this is where Patrick Ricard comes back in the discussion. But I think we talked exactly. about him enough on the on the defensive show to. To, to let that stand for itself. Uh, one other guy I want to talk about this in terms of the guy who's not in any jeopardy, at least I don't think he's in any jeopardy for 2019, is Marshall Yanda. Now, there is a, there's a cap savings of $7 million for cutting him. I, I, I am still hearing people occasionally saying that they don't think Yanda's playing very well. I'm not seeing it on a block-by-block basis. There's, there's basically, since Matt Burke, there has not been any other Raven in the same category with him as far as knowing where and how to make every block when he comes out of his stance. He just he has a complete understanding mechanically for the game. He, does he get beat a slightly more than he was in the past? Maybe. I, I, it's not really showing up in his grades that much. Uh, you know, the Ravens ran a lot this year, which a player like Yanda is really going to excel at because he knows what run block he's supposed to make play after play, and he's very good technically at getting to that point. Um, I just, I'm not seeing any reason why the Ravens wouldn't try and extend him at this point. I mean, 
obviously, if he doesn't want to play, that's a, that's another matter. But Marshallanda, I would think, has a Hall of Fame legacy to play for. He's in the Ravens Ring of Honor anyway. I mean, that, he certainly has made that. But the question is, you know, can he play maybe three more seasons in total and really strengthen his Hall of Fame resume? You get no argument from me. I think he's still one of the top guards in the league. Um, I understand the perspective about the $7 million in cap savings, but guess what? There's other areas on this team where you can save cap. And if you think about it, without him, you have an otherwise pretty young offensive line. And, you know, that veteran presence, it's important throughout the team. But I think on the offensive line, there's even maybe a little bit heightened, a little bit more of a heightened value to having a veteran on your offensive line, particularly a guy who's still performing at a high level like he is. So, yeah, there, I, for, for those who are looking to go in that direction and maybe save some of the money, don't count me in that category because I'm, I'm not there. Glad, glad to hear that. I really, I agree with you. Line could completely unravel without Yonda. And early in the year, you mentioned earlier about Hurst getting help. Well, Hurst, a lot of what he did was helping both Skura, who, who honestly is picking up some of the burden there, and then, you know, pinning his guy in pass blocking situations, which meant that Skura then alone has to handle a, a defensive tackle who may out muscle and out athleticism him. It could be both. But then Yonda was was doing the bailout blocks. To, to uh, you know slide or, or move over whatever you want to call it and then knock or chip or or knock off Hurst's guy who oftentimes had made some progress with the bull rush against James so that was a, a lot of additional value provided by Skura and Yonda that was really not recognized I don't think by the team was how much the, the combination of them was really helping out Hurst early in the year to grade out fairly well. Yeah, if you are able to still make your block at a high level and then go help two other guys, that doesn't look like a guy who's taking a step back to me. Yeah, there you go. Okay, well, let's move on to the veteran cap value concerns because we want to talk about this category briefly. I've got three guys in in the group, Michael Crabtree, uh, Joe Flacco, and James Hurst. Joe Flacco, I don't think we really need to discuss in these terms. Obviously, the Ravens are moving on. They want to try and get trade value for him. Um, Michael Crabtree, a 54% catch year was not what the Ravens would have hoped for when they signed him. No, no, definitely not. I think that he was supposed to be the red zone threat, right? And also sort of the possession guy that you could rely on. I think that's what everybody sort of thought coming in. Um, obviously, he maybe leaves a little bit of a better taste in your mouth because of the two TDs late in the Chargers game, but you can't overlook the season. And um, it's interesting because I had somebody sort of jump on me on Twitter uh, for giving Crabtree a pass because they said, look, you guys were all over Paravin when he dropped balls. Crabtree's dropping even more. And I don't hear anybody calling for this guy to be cut. So uh, I kind of got taken to task a little bit for that. But um, I still think there's some value there with Crabtree. Obviously, he's under contract. But uh, I think you made this point uh, in your article and probably have made it in other places. Is it's not It's not just about his hands with the drops. He does not separate mm-hmm. the way that he did when he was a younger guy. He still can do it at times, but he doesn't do it as consistently as he did when he was a younger guy. And so that makes you know, uh, almost every catch a contested catch. So no matter how good your hands are, uh, that makes things more difficult. So uh, that's something that I think, you know, has to be taken into account with him. And maybe he's a guy that you've got to move around now because I think they lined him up a lot at that X position because he's he's been a traditional X receiver where he's on the line of scrimmage one-on-one with a cornerback and it's his job to beat that guy. Whereas, you know, now you might need to give him a little bit of help. I mean, they did that with Larry Fitzgerald out in Arizona a couple of years. Brutarians came in there and said, hey, I'm going to move you to Z. I did that with Reggie Wayne in Indianapolis and it prolonged his career. So uh, maybe that's something you consider doing with Crabtree. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very reasonable solution to the problem. You know, having him run more routes in the middle of the field would be one thing. The other solution, possibly, and I don't know if this really wor- is going to work for Jackson or not. If he's got the right kind of arm for it, he does seem to have decent velocity on the ball, but is a little bit still erratic in terms of his touch. With Joe Flacco, his bread and butter in his rookie year was that hitch route to Mason, and Mason could just run that route over and over again, where. He ran straight at the cornerback or ran straight past the cornerback. Then he hitched back for the back shoulder throw. It was right there. Flacco and him had a real connection instantly. And if Crabtree does have that double move ability still, because you have to have both. You have to have the threat to go deep to go with that hitch route. Okay. And since he has that double move skill still, we, we did see it against the Chargers on the on the 31-yard TD. Maybe it's something where uh, he can he can develop into a reliable hitch route receiver on the outside and, and give you some of those eight and 10 yard regular first down type throws, or at least that opportunity for the back shoulder. I agree. I think that those throws are there. I think you've seen uh, routes where he was open and maybe Lamar wasn't even, he wasn't working that side of the field or for whatever reason, uh, it didn't get the ball to him. So I think that those opportunities are there. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. So for, uh, for his his low catch percentage, uh, and that might just be where he is at this point in his career. Uh, obviously, we want it to be higher than that, but I think uh, you have to to sort of give a little bit of a caveat to to where Lamar is as a passer and how there's some room to uh, some room for for improvement there. Well, two guys they're going to have to decide on very quickly are Crabtree and Brandon Carr, who they have roster bonuses there payable on the fifth day of the league year, and I believe that's March 17th this year. So those guys are going to have to either be cut by then or, you know, potentially uh, potentially Carr, I guess, could be traded. You know, he's, he's certainly a very durable cornerback somebody might want. He's got an attractive uh, contract still in place. I don't think they get anything for Crabtree. I think they're going to have to cut him. Uh, but we, we talked about Jimmy Smith on the last show being another guy. He doesn't have that that contractual bonus. Now, Brian McFarlane made the point to me today. By the way, I want to point out again, we use a lot of Brian McFarlane's material in going through this. Give Brian a follow on Twitter at Film Study, sorry, at uh, Raven's Salary Cap, and uh, give him a, a, a follow, and you'll find all kinds of important contractual information and stuff's out on Russell Street as well. I refer to it regularly. But anyway, I, the point I wanted to make was that uh, in the case of well, in the case of Crabtree they have to cut him early, but in the case of the other guys of Flacco and Jimmy Smith who they could keep around, string out, and maybe at least work until after the draft to decide if teams there's more demand then that would be created for either of those players who then teams who are, are figuring oh we don't have a cornerback or we don't have a quarterback and those are arguably the two most important positions you know do we need to pick up someone and then you have you have guys you can trade in either case Brian made the point to me that he thought the Ravens would need the money too early and that they can't afford to wait that long on either player that the that the the gain from cutting Flacco and and from cutting um, uh, Jimmy Smith is too great and that they, if they, if they want to keep Jimmy Smith, that's that's another thing. But if they want to cut Jimmy Smith, they'll need that money for the roster, and uh, and they, they probably cannot wait on making those cuts for as long as it would be efficient to from a trade perspective. That's a good point that Brian makes. If you want to be a player in free agency, you're going to need that money. Then uh, mm-hmm. they've never been huge players early in free agency, but when's the last time maybe they've had this much money to play with? Uh, so. You know, maybe that that kind of changes things maybe for them this time. 
Yeah, maybe strategically, it's an opportunity. I would look at it and say most of the most of the guys I want to sign in free agency are are our own guys. Right. I mean, I, I want to make a contract play on Matt Judon, or maybe on Tavon Young, or maybe on Michael Pierce. Uh, let's get one of those guys a year early. And oh, guess what? We don't have to do that right away. We have to earmark the money. We have to know it's going to be available at some point, but we don't have to actually have it at the beginning of free agency. They do need to sign Mosley. They need to decide if they're going to get Zedarius Smith back and if they can be a player on him. If they want both of those guys, they're probably going to have to free up money. If they want to make their play on Suggs and not just have a wink-wink agreement on the side that he's going to sign later with them, which I think is a possibility in his case, then you uh, you know you have other things. You have, you have to free up that money earlier. But if you if you know, they have an opportunity, I think, to hold more money on the or hold more money on the books for longer and, and see if they can get a little extra trade value. And that's not worth it if all you're going to get is a sixth round pick. But it is worth it if you know you might get two teams in a bidding war over a starting quarterback and your and your haul might be a second round pick, say. Yeah, that's that's a good point. There's there's a counter to, to the, the comment that I just made. Uh, I with you. I would like to, if you're going to spend that money, which you're going to spend it. I'd like to see uh, a, a fairly significant portion of it go to signing those guys, your own guys. I totally agree with that. And then, yeah, if you can sort of wait and then use that time horizon to leverage uh, teams into that bidding war situation, then bully for you. Right. I mean, that's yeah. that that's only going to benefit you. So um, that's interesting. There's definitely uh, some some really strong and reasonable arguments on, on both of those approaches. All right. Now, and it, one, the last guy in this category is James Hurst in terms of what they do with him. Um, they can get out of his contract. It's, there's still a cap savings in this next year. Uh, what do you see happening in terms of that, given the year he had? It's tough. Uh, I'm a James Hurst fan, uh, a, a, a James Hurst apologist on Twitter, as I've been called. <laughs> but after this year, uh, in conjunction with some of the guys that we mentioned earlier, Illuminor, Bozeman, uh, it's going to be tough because uh, you've now got your starter at right tackle. Uh, you've got at least one guy in Illuminor, and, and, and maybe we see what Sanat uh, does, too. Uh, so maybe you've got two guys who can back up at both of the tackle spots if you need to. Uh, and then, like you said earlier, Hurst, he seemed to regress a little bit this year when he got some opportunities at guard. You know, I think the back injury probably was a factor. Uh, he probably wasn't, at least just visually to me, it didn't look like he was carrying as much weight as he did last year. I think he bulked up last year to play guard because he knew he was going to be inside and needed to carry that extra bulk and probably shed some of that to play tackle so he can move a little better earlier this year. But um, now he's kind of in that no man's land. And you're right. If if these numbers are right that I looked at at uh, overthecap.com today, uh, 3.5 million in cap savings with a post June one cut. Um, that's going to be something you know difficult not to consider uh when you think about the 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 context uh of those other guys and what you could do uh with that savings yeah so they do have they have obviously significant contract concerns across the roster and they'll need to generate that money at some point but what what was weird about the year is how inverted it was because he'd been a terrible tackle his entire career and i don't want to sugarcoat it anyway he'd really been lousy every single opportunity he got at tackle coming into this year and then he had a reasonable year where he didn't have any really bad games at tackle got a lot of help you know we we notice he still Probably would not be the long-term solution at tackle based on on what he did, but it was you know it was a solid B minus effort on average probably through those first six games at tackle, and then he went back to guard where he played well in 2017 and he was terrible. Three F's in six games, or sorry, in five games, 
um, and and just you know not at all what the Ravens uh, obviously hope for. Uh, boy, it really does make it tough in terms of of what they do this off season with James. But uh, uh, in any case, uh, I'm happy that the contract type that they went with at least gave them a little bit out. It was a big contract, but at least it was structured in a way that, that gives the gives the Ravens a reasonable out after one year. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's good that they they sort of had the foresight to structure it that way because uh he came off of, you know, a solid year at guard versus you know, when previously like you said hadn't been very good at tackle or or, or worse than than not very good. So to sort of give yourself that hedge that hey, you know what? We saw something decent for one year at guard, but guess what? Uh, we don't know what we're really going to have going forward with James. So let's give him that opportunity. Let's reward him for what he has done, because I think he's been a valuable player for them in their eyes. I mean, you think about early on, played in some playoff games, played in some 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 important games in a, in a, in a fill-in role at times. And so I think they, they wanted to sort of acknowledge what he'd done, but also sort of hedge the fact that he may not be the long-term answer. Right. I mean, we, we really hoped coming out of last year that he was just an ugly duckling. He was he was cast improperly as a tackle, moved to guard. He looked looked you know solid and was able to pull, was able to handle some of the mobility concerns with the position. One of the things I'd say this year is they didn't really trust James Hurst at, at guard to run their power to the left side, and the, the problem wouldn't have been Yonda. Yonda's mobility might be a little bit reduced from where it was in his prime, but I, I think the main problem was they really didn't trust James Hurst to handle the inside rotation through that hole. You know, to to to, to generate the torque against that defensive tackle that will allow that hole to open up, and and they had to run to the right, which means Hurst had to pull, and it's probably more suited mobility-wise to his skill set. But if you if you want to blame Yonda for that, you're really pointing the finger at the wrong guy in terms of, of why they're running their power to that side. I mean, obviously, they also are, are going to get less in terms of the mobility block that Brown would provide from the right side on the back side, as opposed to what Stanley can provide you on the back side if you run right. So anyway, I, I, there, are, there are several reasons for it, but it, I don't think it really had much to do with Marshall Yonda is what I would say. No, that 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 down block from from the guy who would be in her position, either on a shaded nose or a three technique is critical because if those guys penetrate and then knock the puller off his course, you got nothing right. That plays dead in the water. So that that's probably more important than people realize. All right. So uh, last group we have is the transitional group. Five guys in it. Quincy Adeboyjo, Buck Allen, uh, Alex Lewis, Jaleel Scott and Corey Vedvik. So. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You start. Uh, no, nah, I'm an, I'm a, also a, a known Buck Allen apologist. Uh, <laughs> I really like Buck because he's he's. If you could probably pick on it, pick up on it by now. I like those kind of underdog kind of guys, scrappy guys, kind of fight to to carve out a niche and and and, and a role on the roster. And it just seems like whenever he gets opportunities, uh, he's going to do something to help the team. Right. At running back, obviously he didn't have a great yards per carry, um, not not sort of explosive uh, in terms of big playmaking ability, but always found ways to contribute and help the team. Whether it was making a block in pass for, uh, in pass protection, blocking a punt on special teams, just you know, I just love those guys who maybe the talent isn't there to sort of put them at that star or maybe just below star level, but they find ways to help the team. So that that's just kind of like, you know, one of those heartstring things for me. But uh, from a financial perspective, 
I don't know if he's a guy that uh, they can, and not necessarily financial, but I guess if you think about the number of running backs that they have on the team, if I were to stack him up against Alex, Alex Collins, though, I mean, you got to think he he provides more value than Alex Collins just because uh, of what he can do on special teams. I, I I I can't agree with that. I mean, I do agree. Buck Allen provides more special teams value than than Alex Collins, no doubt about that. But but I don't agree that in overall value he's got either a higher expectation or a higher ceiling. I say uh, Collins will be higher in both cases. Just got more physical talent. I don't want to come down to it. Oh, as a pure running back, no question. I think we're, we're right in the same place as a pure running back. But as we mentioned earlier, has Alex Collins sort of lost a role in the pure running back position? So I mean, Alex you know, Collins lost a role with injury, and you know I don't, we don't want to get into this back and forth necessarily too much. But but Buck Allen lost all of his touches as a healthy player, even when active. So he wasn't getting any touches down the stretch. The total number of staffs played on offense is almost nothing in this last seven weeks. So it's it's hard for me to to point to that and say, Allen, you know, it, it was anything but Allen's very low yards per touch, and that's both as a passer, as a receiver and a back that wasn't really at the heart of that problem. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's why I I kind of threw it out there that I know it's a heart string thing for me. It's like when I'm coaching uh, youth sports and I, I see these kids who, you know, they're 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 not anything athletically. They haven't been blessed with that, but they try hard as hell. And you just love having those kids out there. Do you have a guy from this group of five that you think could emerge? Is there a player there that you would pick as the most likely to to do something? <sighs> Boy, I I hope it's Jaleel Scott, but I just didn't see it. You know, I, I just didn't see it uh, last year in the preseason. He was a guy who I actually liked uh, coming out of college just because I think he kind of had a unique skill set. You know, tall guy, uh, sort of rangy guy, somebody who you thought could maybe go up and, and be that jump ball sort of red zone target. Um, but I don't know, man. It, it just did not look good in the preseason. You saw drops. He didn't seem to know where he was a lot of times or where he was supposed to be. And a lot of that can be attributed to the adjustment uh, to, to, to coming in as a, as a rookie in the NFL. But uh, my hope is it's Jaleel Scott, but I don't know if that's really based on anything sound. Right. I, I could uh, I could see it being out of Bojo, I guess. Uh, I could also see that Corey Vedvik might be the highest return because he well could play camp, okay. show, his, show some chops as a punter, and the Ravens get a seven for him maybe at the end of camp. Uh, that'd be a little something. Alex Lewis... He's in a he's in very puts the Ravens in a very tough position where he is right now because he's entering his fourth year. He'll be an unrestricted free agent after 2019. Whatever role he gets, if he if he plays very well and and that's what you, of course you'd hope for, he's probably gone after this year. Uh, you don't know it for sure, but but he's probably gone. And the Ravens have so much in between talent in that interior offensive line. That's what's forcing them to consider a draft pick there. So Alex Lewis seems to be on the bubble of that group right now that also includes Hurst and, and Bozeman and Skura and Illuminor would, would be in that group as well. And they've got to try and figure out which of those guys can help them the most and jettison one or two of them prior next year to make room for a draft pick and Sonat. Yeah, I, I liked Alex Lewis's profile when he came in. And you probably know this better than me because you score him. But whenever he pulled, it seemed like he almost never blocked the guy when he was pulling. And I don't know if it was just missing the guy or not knowing which guy to block. And I don't know. I just it's interesting for me with him. I really thought that things were going to play out differently for him. Obviously, injury has been a factor. But even when he's been there, it just hasn't looked the way that I thought it was going to look in terms of consistent performance. 
Uh, he he did not start off the year terribly, but you're right. I mean, it went downhill, and and obviously I'm at this point where, uh, you know, three of his last four games he got a D or an F. But he started off the year playing at about a C level through the first six games, and then the injury struck. When he came back, he wasn't the same player, and and things were just not working as well. Penalized a lot for how 45 total yards of penalties uh, this year. That's a lot for a guy who plays only 662 snaps. So you'd, put, yeah. you'd like to not have uh, that kind of level. Gave up three and a half sacks and 662 snaps, which is a lot for a guard at that point. So just there were, you know, there's a lot of, of things to not like about this season. I hope he can find either a home here, play really well in his fourth year. Uh, I just, I, it's unfortunate when you get to this point and you're not already a star, you kind of start the season on the bubble or you start camp on the bubble as a fourth year player. Agreed. Agreed. Last thing I'll say about guys in this category, Vedvik, I'm glad he's okay. Um, obviously, he's a talented guy, big, strong leg, uh, like you said, so there's definitely some value there. But I'm glad he's okay because that was a pretty scary situation. I lived in the city for almost 10 years myself, and, yeah, you got to be smart uh, when you're going out in the city. you got to be smart about where you're going and who you're going with because you can get yourself in some trouble if you're not. Uh, we, we, we forget the fact that he's really not American. And, you know, he came here and, and he might not have had the same kind of fears, expectations that, you know, we grew up with. I grew up in the city, too. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you, you had to be careful. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So it's been a lot of fun here going through this. Any other overall high level notes on the offense you want to you talk about or why don't we let Josh do the mailbag and then we can finish with those? How about that? Yep, sounds good. All right, let's uh, let's go through the mailbag. You can send in your questions even through the off season using the hashtag fil- uh, film study mailbag. All right, so first one we've got up is from Jim Rusner. Comparing the offensive line play from 2017 to 2018, was the loss of Jensen a big deal, or were there other issues that caused these challenges? You know, that's you a, go there, Ken. yeah, that's an outstanding question. I, I don't know that I can pinpoint it to the lack of uh, lack of Jensen. I mean, Jensen is a, certainly a mauler, but when they started to run the ball effectively, Skura was up to that task. That was not that was not really what the problem was. Uh, you know, Jensen uh, had a fine year in 2017. He, he took a big step back with Tampa in 2018. Uh, you know, some of it may be just getting getting to play next to Marshall Yonda as opposed to somebody else in Tampa Bay. And I don't know, who, honestly, who he didn't play next to there, but they weren't Marshall Yonda, I can tell you that. And I, I'm not sure if maybe that had an impact on his play. But, uh, you know, he certainly did the Ravens a solid by going out there, A, getting a huge contract, and B, uh, playing all 16 games because that's put them in position now to potentially get the last uh, draft pick of the third round as com- compensation for him. Yeah, and I think some of their slow start uh, in, in terms of the run game early in the season, you really had to look at, you had a new combination of guys in some ways, right? You had Skura his first year starting at center. You had Alex Lewis in at left guard. Uh, you had Hurst, who played some right tackle before. But in terms of having that particular combination of guys together, there's so much cohesion that goes into how well an offensive line uh, performs in terms of, uh, and you guys heard it when Skura was on your show, it's almost like nonverbal at a point, right, when you really know what that guy next to you is going to do and how he's going to respond to a particular look uh, from a defender. And this was a new combination of guys, and so it takes time to develop that, and I think that might have played a part too. 
All right, uh, we're going to stick with the offensive line and move into Allie Mil- Milner's question. Do you think we're going to see a complete overhaul of the O-line with younger talent, or will DaCosta take advantage of the 10.5 cap savings by releasing or trading Flacco to help retain veteran talent? I do think they're going to retain veteran talent. I think a lot of that's going to be on the defensive side of the ball where those obvious signings are. The, the, the one guy that they're going to you know, obviously pony up for is Ronnie Stanley, and that's, that's still a year or two away. So in terms of, of an overhaul, I think they need to figure out from the five guys that I mentioned about two minutes ago who they think really can play and who, who they don't think is really in their future plans. And they're going to need to make a couple tough cuts. They may, be, they may be decided for them by injury during camp next year, but there's going to be a couple guys who don't make it. This year was Nico Siracusa who found himself on the outside. I was a little surprised by that in, in terms of, of who they didn't end up with. But I do think they'll draft at least one offensive lineman. Uh, they may have somebody else they like on a UDFA basis, and they may have somebody else they bring in on a veteran basis. I think that's actually less likely. Um, I think it's more likely they think they have enough of the young pieces and they go for one more more high-profile interior offensive lineman with this draft. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily see the complete overhaul because, like you just mentioned, you've got Stanley at left tackle, you've got Brown at right tackle, presumptively you're still going to have Yonda at right guard. So you're talking about two spots, center and left guard. So uh, you certainly could look to upgrade there, but um, that wouldn't fit the description as a major overhaul to me. All right. Uh, Jalen wants to know, can we come into next season with the same formula and have success? I assume he means offensive I'm formula. assuming he means the Lamar Jackson limited play runs that they've been doing. There you go. Um do you want to start on this one, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously you're going to have to evolve the offense. I mean, I think that's true of uh, most offenses, maybe this one more uh, than others, uh, because, you know, teams have a year to study you in the offseason. And I think we've seen that if you give NFL defensive coordinators uh, an entire offseason to study a particular offensive sort of philosophy. I know some people have referred to what they do as a gimmick. I don't see it as a gimmick because Greg Roman's been doing it. Uh, he actually said this is version 4.0 of the offense. So he feels like he's been doing this for a long time. So it's going to have to evolve. You certainly probably can't have Lamar carrying the ball 15 to 17 times a game. Um, you're going to have to do more in terms of how you attack with the passing game. But in terms of still using some of the zone read, in terms of still using some of the quarterback run concepts uh, like quarterback power, or, uh, we talked about quarter, uh, the QB counter bash on one of the other shows. I think you can still do that stuff, uh, but I think you are going to have to evolve the offense, uh, still including those concepts. But I mean, just go back and look at the year that he was with the 49ers. I mean, they, they basically had a very similar offense and rode it all the way to the Super Bowl with a very similar formula, right? Great defense, uh, run the ball, and just complimentary football. So I think that's a philosophy that's as old as the game itself, running the ball, controlling the clock, playing good defense and special teams. That's been around since football has been around. So do you have to evolve it in some ways? Absolutely. But can you win games consistently with that formula? I think you can. I, I think they need to go move away from as many read option plays and have more run pass option plays where it's either a handoff or it's a pass instead of it's either a run play up the middle with Edwards or a run play to the edge with Lamar. It's about getting the getting the ball into the hands of other playmakers, which means that we'll have to evolve the offense in terms of the personnel, I think. Less aircraft carriers, more patrol boats, 
as I would say, at wide receiver, and uh, more uh, opportunities to, uh, uh, to to get the ball into a receiver's hands on the on the edge, and that might be a running back if they can find the right guy as well. But yeah, I think the offense needs to evolve some in, in order to do this. But the nice evolution that they made on uh, in terms of using this strategy, which is a, you know an old one certainly in terms of keeping the ball, is they use the defensive rotation to really maximize it. And that's why what I found so interesting about this, because there, there really haven't been a lot of other coaches. And you mentioned Belichick, but there haven't been a lot of other coaches to use defensive platooning the way the Ravens did in this last year, particularly at the cornerback. I mean, it's just not done. All right. Well, let's talk about refreshing this offense a little bit. And Sean wants to know, with Greg Roman, Lamar Jackson-led offense, what type of wide receiver fits best? Do we want a jump ball guy, a physical guy, a shifty inside receiver, a speed specialist? Ideally, you want them all on one, in one, but there's only one Julio Jones. That is true. He is an alien. I've said that several times. I don't think he's from this planet. Uh, so <laughs> you, don't, you don't come across those guys too often. Um, you know, I think sort of I have two ways of thinking about this. I think right now because Lamar throws the ball the most accurately, sort of most consistently accurate over the middle of the field, you like guys sort of in that tight end profile that they have, right? Sort of that six three, six four, six five kind of big body guy uh, who can sort of body up uh, maybe smaller uh, defenders in the middle of the field, uh, sort of contested catch kind of guys in there. But you also like some of those laterally quick guys too, who can separate and sort of get open in the middle of the field. Um, so that's sort of the first way I think about. It. The second way is just it's um. It, it's something Brian Billick used to say all the time. When you're building a wide receiving core, think about a basketball team. Right. You want complementary skills. You want a guy who's like your point guard. You want a guy who's a shooting guard. You want a small forward, a power forward, a center. All those guys on a basketball team sort of bring complementary skills. Center is your big guy going to go up and rebound. Power forward kind of, you know, do your dirty work. Small forward, quick slasher, shooting guard, kind of same thing. And point guard kind of runs the whole thing. Right. Savvy kind of understands what's going on and where to be. So I actually like that approach almost regardless of quarterback is that you just have a diverse set of complementary skills in your ride receiving core. Yeah, I, I like it too. I, I think it works better on defense to have that where you're matching up against certain uh, down and distance and certain packages. I think on the on the offense to have five guys with individual skills where they don't like have some overlapping. Some guys are two and three tool talents. I think you end up with with some more less route disguise. Like let's let's take a player. The most obvious and most single route guy in Ravens history is Vontae Leach. He had a three-yard out pattern. That is the only thing that guy ever ran. And the only time he didn't do it was that first play of the Super Bowl. You go back and look at that play, all of a sudden he's six yards down the field, and the, the, the 49ers got to be wondering what the heck's going on. But uh, but anyway, I, I, I think you want to have receivers who can at least threaten to run multiple routes, and it's it's not obvious exactly how they're going to run the route tree off, off the skill set of your five receivers. And as much as I love economizing at the wide receiver position, I think that's that's probably an area where the Ravens have had difficulty in the past. All right, uh, speaking of wide receiver, Joshua Elliott Hoffman wants to know if you have any idea why Chris Moore lost the kick return job. I know Montgomery did the job in Green Bay, but it seemed like a disaster. I think he's talking yeah, about the last game. Yeah. The, I think he missed like the last uh, last two games. He got, and I thought he might have gotten hurt in the uh, Cleveland game, and then we just didn't see him in in the playoffs. I'm with so you. No We're answer. kind of looking puzzled here. All I, right. I don't think we have a good answer for him. All right, that works. Um, all right, let's talk to another Chris. Chris wants to know 
Since I'm mostly a draft junkie, my question is, what are your priorities on the offensive side of the ball going into the draft? Debates have been uh, ra- uh, debates have been on between offense, interior offensive line, wide receiver. What do you? What is your different opinion, and what should the philosophy be? I mean, those are the two positions I'd name as they got to pick up a guy at each. Uh, wide receiver, because you just have to start beating the development tree at wide receiver and get off the treadmill. And an interior offensive line, I think, because they've, they've got a bunch of okay options and they really need a, a potential star player in the interior offensive line. Yeah, I tend to agree with both of those two. Um, like I mentioned on, on the defensive show, uh, my philosophy is sort of about affecting the passer right on defense and on offense so on offense that means guys who can protect for the passer uh so yeah i I definitely would like to see them sort of beef up that interior uh of the offensive line and i think eric DaCosta said it last year he feels like maybe some of their struggles at at finding guys in the draft at wide receivers because they haven't taken enough swings uh when they've been at the plate so i would expect to see more swings uh at that position i think we saw it a little bit last year and i'd imagine we'd see it going forward so neither of you are asking for a new quarterback. No. Uh, all right. So Brad Brad gets in with a defensive follow up from yesterday's episode, and he wants to know what your thoughts are on Zadarius Smith's value and if the Ravens need to prioritize an extension with him. I, I think it behooves the Ravens to figure out what it's going to cost to to get Zadarius back, and I think the only way they can actually going to be able to afford him is if they can't afford Mosley. So, you know, we, we said this on yesterday's show, but maybe bears repeating is the Ravens need to figure out what their defense looks like without Mosley. If they can find a way to do it cheaply and all of a sudden you have 12 million going away from your expectations and you're going to end up paying 3 million for a platoon of players at that Mike linebacker spot, give your play calling responsibilities to safety, then I think it's possible you can you can get to Darius Smith. Uh, he will be a big number. And at some point, the Ravens have to say no to that big number, even though it's going to really hurt to lose him. Yeah, and I, I like Zadarius. Big, big, been a big fan of him. Actually, um, wrote a scouting report about him and tried to enter a competition with the scouting academy. I actually ended up going there and paid the tuition, but they were offering a free tuition uh, if you could win that contest. And he was a guy that I wrote up. So I'm a huge fan uh, of of Zadarius. But I think you're right. I think it's going to be hard if you're going to max out Mosley. Uh, to then turn around and pay Zadarius the kind of money that he's looking for. And as much as I would hate to see them lose him, I do think that you can replicate what he does with another guy or maybe a combination of guys. I'm not saying they come in. Yeah, I'm not saying they come in from day one and they can do it, but I think that you can, right? Because I think what happens is we become prisoners of the moment and we look at what happened this year. But then if you go back to a year or two ago, I think, people weren't that high on it. I probably was higher when I shouldn't have been. And now maybe I'm coming down a little bit when I should be. So I'm actually in that opposite category just because I'm looking at skill set. And as talented as he is, uh, if it's about a financial choice, I think that if you have to make that tough call, you could probably find a way to replicate. Uh, we talk about that 80, 20 rule. Maybe you can replicate, maybe not 80, 70% of what he does with a combination of guys uh, if you can't afford to meet his price point. 
Well, it's uh, that outside linebacker who can move inside is the guy who has driven the pass rush for the Ravens. Every time they've had a really great pass rusher, they, it's been because they've had a great interior rusher. Now, I, I'm going to cheat and include Trevor Price in this category who never really played outside linebacker, but he was a great inside rusher. They had Pernell McPhee in 2014 when they had their 60-sack year, or 56-sack year, I guess it was. He was the guy who really drove that pass rush, even though Doomerville and Suggs were left on islands to win a lot of battles. It was that incredible first step of McPhee to to get to a double team and, and command it on the inside and also occasionally beat those double teams that was really special. I, I think we saw a lot of that from Zadarius and his ability to be the inside-outside pivot point, uh, you know, even when the linebackers were getting too many snaps at the end of the year. That was the only overtaxed group they really had. Uh, boy, I, I put a lot of value on Zadarius Smith and what he brings to the, to the defense as it now stands. I love the guy, and I, I I hope they bring him back. But I'm trying to put myself in this GM frame of mind where you got to make these really tough calls, and then what do you do? Uh, but no, if, if it's just about me as a fan and and enjoying him as a player, if it was if it's up to me, I'm going to pay him whatever he wants. But <laughs> but I'm, I understand that's not the reality. Right, and there's already reports out of the Ravens working with Mosley trying to get that done before March. Smart. So. Uh, all right, you went over this question yesterday. Let's do it again for the offense. Hugh wants to know who was the biggest surprise this year. You know, well, for me, I mean, I. I mean, it should be obvious, right? Know, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, but see, it's it's hard for me to say it's obvious because I don't know that I was that surprised by what Lamar did. I was a huge Lamar guy leading up to the draft, obviously, and so that I carry that bias into this to to rattle off six out of seven wins and basically help guide this team to winning the division. No, I certainly didn't see that. I'm not going to say I predicted that at all. So I guess from that standpoint, yes, I was surprised, but from the standpoint of just how he played, I actually wasn't that surprised by that. I'd probably be more surprised by a guy like Gus Edwards than I was from Lamar Jackson. Well, I was going to use Gus Edwards as my guy. Thanks for taking two, you know, before I got a chance. But anyway, I, I'll, we'll go. That's okay. We'll go back to the Hall of Fame game. Um, I remember Chris Collinsworth made a statement, and, and Lamar just did look very lost in that Hall of Fame game. He didn't look like the same quarterback that was just what twelve weeks later, you know, taking over the offense and running it very efficiently and uh, and whatnot uh, in terms of efficiently in terms of keeping him on the field at least. But Collinsworth had the point. He said this: maybe he's, maybe. You know, we've heard he's a year away, but maybe he's a year away from being a year away. And it turned out he was weeks away, you know, and his, his progression has really been remarkable in, in terms of how fast he grew into uh, the role he did. So I, I guess it was actually a little more. It was probably more like 15 weeks from the from that first Hall of Fame game until he took over the offense in November. But still impressive to me. All right. I'm going to close out the mailbag with one of my own questions. So this is an at Josh Soroka question. Uh, because the Ravens did make a move on the offensive side uh, by firing Marty Morningweg and uh, moving Greg Roman up and then reshuffling around a bunch of coaches. So my question for you guys is, do you like this move? Do you think we're going to see anything different from this offense with a Greg Roman at the helm rather than Marty? Or do you wish they went outside and brought a, a new coordinator in outside the organization? I like the move uh, promoting Greg Roman. I think it's a little bit harder for me to comment about some of the other reshuffling with some of the other coaches. I I, I just don't have a good feel for that. But I, I like the move of promoting Roman to OC with 
Lamar as your, you know, your, your quarterback going forward. Obviously he's worked with uh, guys who, who stylistically are like Lamar in the past. Uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, he feels like he's running the 4.0 version of this offense. Uh, I think you still got James Urban there. I think they had a pretty good thing going on there, even with Marty, when Marty was still there calling the plays. They seem to have a pretty good thing going in terms of weekly game preparation. And, um, you know, you can always question in-game calls. We all do because we get the benefit of second-guessing it. But I think that they had a pretty good uh, relationship there. And so if you can keep Roman in that mix, if you keep Urban in that mix, and then the interesting thing for me that will be is, yeah, this is version 4.0, but how does it evolve, right? Because we've seen the previous versions, and they've had some success, but they've also had some limitations. So how can we evolve version 4.0, and how can Greg Roman evolve uh, now that he's back in the OC uh, seat again? One of the things that's difficult for me to separate is what each of these guys contributed to things. But I would agree that Urban seemed to have a very good effect on the quarterback. And I think RG3 probably did too. It's hard to, it's hard to really say who, around the quarterback room who's really helping the most. We don't really have all the insight into how that game plan was developed. I will say Roman has been here two years now. I believe it's two years exactly. And Collins broke out, and then they had other – you know, breakouts in the run game the next year. Tight ends were a big part of it both times. You know, he's, he's in principle been the guy behind the run game plan, even though Marty obviously is the, has been the one that's been calling the plays. It looks to me like this could be a good move. We really have not seen all the way under the hood to see who's responsible for everything these past couple of years. So I, I'm excited to see it, uh, you know, see Roman get his chance and see how it works out. Yeah, I, I do hope this off season when uh, Jeff Zebrek's looking for some long form writing to do that he can dig into some of these Raven personnel and talk about that transition from Joe to Lamar and that that bye week transition and how they shifted the whole offense around and who really uh, led the led the helm at that. Um, but how much of the concern do you think was this change made based on Marty's performance, or do you think it was fear of losing Greg Roman to another team? Yeah, that's a good question. It could be either, and and we don't really have the insight into this. I mean, obviously, uh, John remained loyal to Marty and wanted to give him another job, and I don't really know what that would have been, offensive assistant or something. Like right, quarterback I, I, coach. And then they get then they get rid of James Urban. I mean, you yeah. know, if one of the strongest performers is there, it's kind of hard to – you have to squish him into some other role where he wasn't before, and I, I don't know exactly what that been. I think, you know, you're probably better off with the clean break. But, yeah, I, I, Josh, you're probably right. It may have been a fear of losing Roman that led them to this. I, I don't think that they were all that excited with what Marty did in his time here either, though. I agree. I agree. I lean more towards the fear of losing Roman because you look at all the things we just talked about in terms of the familiarity and the comfort uh, with having that group together with Lamar. But then go back two years ago before Roman got here and look at the state of the run game. It wasn't good. Uh, and so he came in and basically had turned it around and got them to be like a top 10, maybe even lower than that, just in terms of rushing uh, production, uh, a top 10 rushing unit. And so I think if you uh, are going to base your offense largely on the run game, you don't want to lose Greg Roman. All right. Well, that will put this past Raven season to bed for us. For now on, any new episodes is going to be looking to the future. Ken, why don't you lay out some of the future episodes we'll be doing this offseason? So we, we typically have done acquisition pieces, uh, occasionally a State of the Ravens piece when they when they talk about that. One of the things I don't do in my writing is generally to follow, try and follow on quotes that other people have. I, generally, 
all of that stuff is deception and and quote talk. I don't have any interest in hearing what the Ravens say they're going to draft before the draft. I don't have any interest in in hearing in, in talking about a lot of things that are coach speak during the seasons. I really don't write about that. I write from first principles from watching film. I think you're probably pretty similar in that regard, Michael. That you don't really lean on what the coaches are saying for stuff. No, no, no. If you want to get fooled. Just start listening to that stuff. Yeah. But anyway, we will have acquisitions that occur, and we'll have a chance to talk about those. Uh, we'll have a schedule uh, piece when that comes out because that's a that's a, a topic people are interested in. They want to plan ahead for trips. Everybody wants to hear how the Ravens got screwed in terms of the scheduling. Sometimes they do anyway. Uh, we'll have we'll have pieces during camp. Obviously, when the preseason starts up, we'll be back in full force in terms of looking at the offense and defense every week. All right, and then uh, everyone for now, during the offseason, check out Russell Street Report. There'll still be stuff going up on there by you guys. And then why don't you share both your Twitter handles? Uh, I'm at Abukari on Twitter. That's A-B-U-K-A-R-I. Great Twitter follow, Michael. I highly encourage everyone to follow him. Great gifts, uh, presents a lot of other very interesting, thought-provoking material. Uh, I'm at Film Study Ravens on Twitter. You can follow myself on Russell Street Report as well, including offensive line charting if you want that. All right, guys. Well, we will talk uh, a little later once the Ravens start doing some moves and get ready for next season. guys, it's Mike. As you know, I adopted my pup Rocky from a local rescue. Now, when people ask me what kind of dog Rocky was, I was always stumped. I used an Embark Dog DNA test to decode my most puzzling questions about Rocky. You can also learn about your dog's inner secrets with Embark, the highest rated dog DNA test. Unlock over 350 breeds and screen for over 200 genetic health risks. Save $50 on a breed and health kit with promo code KIT at EmbarkVet.com. Again, that's promo code KIT. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture, and when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.